Hello, and thanks so much for tuning into the Digging Deeper podcast with Pastor Ken Vance. This podcast is designed to go a step beyond the Sunday teaching with a more in-depth look at the topic Pastor Ken shared with us this past weekend. So whether you're on your way home from work or pouring yourself a fresh cup of coffee, we hope you enjoy today's podcast. Make sure to hit that subscribe button so you don't miss the next episode. And now, here's Digging Deeper with Pastor Ken Vance. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. I'm Pastor Ken, the senior pastor at Vertical Church, and this is our weekly podcast, Digging Deeper with Pastor Ken. Thanks for taking the time to tune in. It's always exciting for me, for people who are hungry and really want to know and to learn God's Word at a deeper level. And that's what these podcasts are designed for. They're to keep the conversation going from Sunday morning, to dig deeper into truths, to share things that will help you be established and grounded in the Word. And my hope is that these things would truly come alive to you because it's not what we know about God's Word. It's what we know and apply from God's Word that make a difference in our lives. And I'm really excited to begin a series of discussions that we're going to talk about that'll take us all the way to Easter. We're going to be looking at the gospel according to John. And why is this so significant? Because the gospel of John represents an eyewitness account to the events of Jesus' life. John was the youngest of Jesus' followers. And as an old man, he came to write what we know as the Gospel of John, because he had to address issues that were going on in his day. And why this is so critical and important for us in our day and to understand is that there are many who have arisen, voices that have said that the Gospels, the stories of the life of Jesus were written hundreds of years after the actual events occurred. Now, one of the reasons that people attempt to make this argument is they try to dispel the supernatural, the idea of the miraculous, Because in a scientific age, people try to say, well, that's just not possible. And therefore, Jesus of Nazareth never claimed the things they say he claimed, nor did he do the things they said he did. That those things were legend. Those were fairy tale and fantasy that were added in later to try to make the case. But there's no way that you can read the gospel according to John and not recognize that this is written by someone who was an eyewitness, someone who was right there on the scene. And that's why it's important, because this is what my challenge to all of you listening here is, that you would read this gospel with us. In these series of discussions, that you would read it for yourself, that you would take your own notes, that you would recognize the importance of this, because John's going to address an issue that has implications. I believe that the greatest question that a human being will ever truly need to answer is, who is Jesus? And that's what the Gospel of John is written for. It's to give an eyewitness account to whom John came to believe Jesus was. And this was no easy journey. John was a young Jewish boy when he came to know Jesus. And he began to see that this rabbi from Nazareth was, no, was unlike anybody that he had ever seen or heard before. And not only did he speak and teach it a way that was just so mind-bending and so provocative and so wise and just held the wisdom of God in such a relevant and captivating way, but he also had the miraculous. He healed. He did many signs and wonders. He did many miracles among them. And no one had ever done what they had seen Jesus do before. And so all of this was important. And it became significant because, again, John being a young Jewish boy, the claims that he makes in his gospel were not easy for him to come to. And that's why we need to address this, because I do believe the author of the gospel of John is John, the son of Zebedee, one of the followers of Jesus. Now, in modern day scholarship, there are people who are attempting to write and prove the case that they believe that the gospel was written by John the Elder. In other words, someone else other than John, the son of Zebedee, someone who lived and was a resident of Jerusalem. One of the reasons they say such is because when you read the gospel of John, you recognize that the John who wrote such had uh, connections. He knew the high priest. He knew wealthy and influential people in the city of Jerusalem, which is why he was able to go into the home of the high priest. But 
just because John, the son of Zebedee, was a fisherman from from Galilee, from Capernaum in that area, they say that there's no way his family would have that type of connections and influence. But we don't know that. Truthfully, the early church fathers gave uh, credence to the realization that this was written by the Apostle John. He was just a young man when he had come to uh, discover Jesus, began to follow Jesus. He had been he heard the he had been a follower of John the Baptist, and he heard John the Baptist's testimony respecting Jesus and began to follow Jesus from that moment. That's really where his gospel really starts to tell the story of Jesus. But I don't want to get ahead of myself. But it's important to recognize that John had a purpose in writing what he wrote. Because by the time John was an older man, the two threats that had come to the Christian movement, the very first one was the threat of legalism. The Judaizers that came along and attempted to say that the the um, the teachings of Jesus, the, the movement that Jesus began, the, the ecclesia, the church, was to follow the ways of Moses. In other words, the Sinai Code, the, the law that was given to Israel. But Jesus had said the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread and broke it and said, this is my body which is broken for you. And he took the cup and said, this is the new covenant established in my blood. Jesus instituted something new. And that was difficult. The church had to wrestle through those things. And so John, by the time he was older, realized that the second threat to Judaism with the advent of so many uh, Gentiles coming into the kingdom of God, now there was something called Gnosticism. Gnosticism was those who claimed to have special knowledge or, or secret knowledge. That Greeks, the Bible said, seeked after wisdom, whereas Jews sought after a sign. They sought after miracles and signs to prove it, but Greeks honored and sought after wisdom. And so there were some that came along and said they had special insights. And so the identity of Jesus was at the core of the question for followers of Christ, because Jesus said his identity was the very foundation of the church. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus asked the question to his disciples, who do people say that I am? And just like our day, there are many opinions. In fact, many people's opinions about what they believe is fashioned and formed by others from without, without ever looking at the evidence themselves. That's why my encouragement to all that are listening to this podcast is that you would read the Gospels for yourself because God has given you a brain. He's given you intelligence. You can read and make a decision for yourself. Because the question, who is Jesus, I believe is the most important question that a human being will ever need to answer for themselves. Because it's not important what other people say. It's not important what your spouse says, what your boyfriend or your girlfriend says, what your, what your mother or father says. Everyone must make a decision for themselves because faith is an individual realization of who you believe Jesus Christ of Nazareth is. And so Jesus asked the question to his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they got lots of opinions. No different than our day today. People come along and they have lots of opinions of who they say Jesus is. But then Jesus made it personal. He turned it on his disciples and said, but who do you say I am. And this is the famous passage where Peter spoke up and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus told them that flesh and blood did not reveal that to you, but my father in heaven. And upon this rock, I will build my church. The revelation of who Jesus is, is the very foundation stone of the Christian faith. And that's what John's gospel tackles. Who is Jesus. What is his true identity? The other thing I love about the gospel of John is it is a manual for discipleship. If you're truly a follower of Jesus, I pray that you would be excited as we study this together because we begin to recognize what does it truly mean to be a disciple of Jesus? We're going to cover that as we go through this end. But again, John as a young Jewish boy came to see things about Jesus and he came to a conclusion. He came to a belief in who Jesus is and what his life, what the implication of his life is for humankind. 
And it was no small journey. It was the things that he saw. It was the things that he was eyewitness to. And that's why he felt the necessity as he was getting older before he departed to make these claims direct and clear so that people could come to their own decisions about who Jesus is. Because knowing who Jesus is, believing in who he is, has implications for our life. John gave the reason why he wrote his gospel. In John chapter 20 and verses 30 and 31, John said this, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples. Now in John's gospel, he refers to the miracles that Jesus performs as signs. And just like signs to do, do for us today, signs point to things. Signs give direction. We look at signs on the road, which give us uh, um, directions as to where we're going. Signs advertise things. Signs point to things. Well, Jesus performed these miracles and they were signs. They were giving uh, access to those who he did them for to know his true identity. And that's why it's important because Jesus didn't just come along making claims about himself. He performed signs that gave evidence and proof of who he was. And that's what we're going to be looking at. That's how we're going to go approach these discussions because we're going to be talking about these signs. Because again, here in John 20 and verse 30, it says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, talking about his gospel. John had just said before that, that if all of the miracles that Jesus had performed, if all of the things that he taught were recorded in books, the world couldn't hold the volumes. I can't even imagine what the apostles who had a front row seat of the ministry of Jesus, all the things that they were eyewitnesses to, all the things that they saw occur before them. John said, if we recorded them all, you couldn't even contain the volumes but he goes on to say in verse 31, but these are written. So he tells us why he wrote this. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. In other words, John had two people in mind or two audiences, I should say, in mind when he was writing his gospel. And here the Apostle Paul had said the, the gospel, the good news was to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. And John had the same two audiences in mind when he was writing his gospel because he says here that you would believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Messiah is a term to the Jewish people. It was the promised one that would come. It was the king of Israel. It would be the one that would fulfill the promises of God, the one that had been prophesied from the Garden of Eden, that, that seed of a woman that would crush the head of the serpent. It was the, the child of Abraham, the seed of Abraham, who would bring blessing to all the nations of the world. It was the son of David who would sit upon the throne and rule over the nations, not just Israel, but rule over the nations. And so this... Uh, uh, promise was the hunger and desire of the Jewish people. And John's saying here that they should know and understand Jesus is the Messiah they had all been waiting for. And so he wanted them to believe that Jesus is the Messiah and to the Greco-Roman world that he's the son of God and that by believing you may have life in his name. Now notice there's two points in verse 31 where John uses the term may. He said, these things are written that you may. In other words, there's always a choice. There's always an opportunity for us to make a decision for ourselves. And because God has given all humanity the dignity to choose for themselves, John is providing evidence. He's providing proof. It's like in a court of law, eyewitness testimony is considered credible. It can be given in a court of law, but yet there's still a jury and yet there is still a judge. And all of them must make a decision based on the evidence that they hear. And here John is presenting eyewitness evidence so that we can make our own conclusion. We can make our own decision. And here is his hope that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And then he goes on to say this, and that by believing you may have life in his name. He said that, again, the word may here, is that believing has an implication. And what's the implication? That we may have life in his name. And so in essence, there are two significant words that I want to 
uh, uh, tie into here that John uses. He says that you would believe. The word believe in the Greek is the word pisteo. It means to be persuaded of. Generally, we're persuaded by what we hear, by the evidence that we're presented with. And so it is. Faith is not blind. And that's important. One of the reasons why it's been so easy for people sometimes to walk away from faith is because they've never truly been persuaded about what they believe. See, it's not important alone what somebody else tells you. It's what you come to believe for yourself, that you have examined the evidence. Since my children were young, I have raised them to understand that Christianity is based on evidence. In fact, the very foundation of the Christian faith is based on an event. It's the last sign that John will talk about, the resurrection of Jesus, because that was the final proof text that caused all of his believers to truly understand his true identity. But I don't want to get ahead of myself on that end. But Christianity is based on facts. It's based on events. It's based on things that happen. It's not based on someone having a vision or a revelation and coming saying, hey, I heard this from God. And there are religions, there are belief systems in the world where people believe that, oh yes, this person heard from God and they believe it. No, Christianity is based on events. It's based on circumstance. It's based on evidence of things that occurred. And it all centers on who Jesus is. That's the core. That's the foundation of the Christian faith. Who is Jesus? And people are debating it today, just as they debated it in the day that Jesus lived. And after he was risen from the dead, the message of the disciples was to, was to give witness, to give testimony to who he was. And so again, the word believe, the word pisteo means to be persuaded of, to place one's confidence in, to trust. The word signifies reliance upon, not mere credence. In other words, there's people that say they believe things, but yet their actions and their lives don't support what they say they believe. True biblical faith is belief that is followed up by actions because the things we truly believe are the things that persuade us to do what we do. The word belief, pisteo, is connected to the another word that's closely related to it, the word faith. The word faith is the word in Greek, pistis, which means to be fully persuaded. So when we believe, it leads us because faith is acting upon what we believe. And that's why the Bible tells us we are saved by faith. When you put your trust in Jesus, when you believe that he is in truth the savior of the world and it becomes personal to you, when you rely that it's his death on that cross that alone can give me the forgiveness of sins and a right standing with God, that you stop the religious tradition, you stop trying to do it in your own strength. Because the Bible is very clear, we cannot save ourselves. And that's the fallacy of religion, because many people practice a, a, a save-yourself belief system. They do good things, and then they expect God to do something for them. In fact, they attempt to hold God hostage, that, God, you owe me something. But the Bible tells us that God demonstrated his love for us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. None of us deserve what God did for us. But Jesus and his identity overwhelms the human mind when we discover that he is in truth who he claimed to be and what he did for humankind that we can come and place our trust in him and him alone. That our right standing with God is not based on works of righteousness, which we do, but according to God's mercy with the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Ghost. It's what God does in us by placing our trust in faith in Jesus. And so in end, it's a confidence, it's a trust. See, trust causes me to do things that I may not understand in totality, but because the one who told me is trustworthy, I can act on the things I believe. And that's what true biblical faith is. It's not just saying, oh, I believe that but it's a lifestyle that it conforms to what it says it believes. But the second word that John uses, which has implications because believing, he says, we may have life. The word life 
that he uses here in the Greek language is the word zoe. And zoe is difficult for Greek translators to put into place because zoe represents the very life of God. It's life as a principle. It's life in the absolute sense because God's life has no vestiges of death or decay. It is pure. It is powerful. So in essence, it is a quality of life. It's life as God has it. It it represents God's very life. And if we understand the story of the Bible, man was created to live by the life of God. In the Garden of Eden, when man was created by God and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, the Bible teaches us that the, there was a tree in the center of the garden called the tree of life. When man sinned because he ate from the tree that he was forbidden to eat from, the tree of the knowledge of good and bad, he ate that and it brought death into the situation and separated him from the life of God. But it was always the intention of God that man would live in relation to God by the life of God. It's a quality of life. It's life as God lives it. It's life that's above the everyday mundane life that you and I can experience. And we'll get more into that as we kind of discuss this. But this is what John is saying. That Jesus, because when man was separated from the tree of life, we, we become um, cognizant, we become aware that John is bringing us back to this realization that Jesus becomes for us the tree of life. You see, man was separated from it from the Garden of Eden, but Jesus came to restore the plan of God. And the Bible teaches us that Jesus was hung on a tree. The cross represented and becomes for us the tree of life. That Jesus gave us his life in exchange for our sin and unrighteousness. And through Christ, we can experience a quality of life that's beyond what we recognize and know in our own ability to produce. That's why Jesus said, I'm the true vine. And when you are connected to me, you produce life you could not produce on your own. You produce fruit. It's the, it's the realization that we were created to be fruitful. We were created to produce. We were created to live by God's essence in life, to do things in our lives for good that in truth glorify God. But again, John is something, this is, he, he, covers this so much through the course of his gospel. And so again, I don't want to get ahead of myself, but it's important to see that. And so when we talk about the gospel of John, as we get into this, the gospel of John, it is brilliant in the way that it's formulated. John's gospel begins with a, John chapter one is a prologue. John makes claims about who Jesus is and then goes about through the rest of his gospel to quantify or to establish it. So in other words, John chapter one is like his thesis statement where he makes the claim of who Jesus is. And then he goes about showing through the course of all that he writes about, the signs that he points to that justify or support the claim that he makes in John chapter one. In John chapter one, this is fascinating and you can study this on your own. You can actually, I encourage people when you're reading this through, you can circle these in your Bible that John says in John chapter one, there are seven titles that are made about Jesus that John then goes about writing about in the course of his gospel. Number one, he's called the Lamb of God. Number two, he's called the Son of God. Number three, he's called the Messiah. Number four, he's called the king of Israel. Number five, he's called the son of man. Number six, he's called the rabbi. And number seven, he's called Jesus of Nazareth, the fully human one. But John makes this claim that as he begins to study this, and John chapter one and verse one, this is so fascinating. Listen, it said, in the beginning was the word. The reference here that John is referencing back to is Genesis 1.1. All of his Jewish believers will know exactly the point at which that John is making this hyperlink to. He's hyperlinking to Genesis 1.1 because Genesis 1.1 says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And so here in John 1.1, it says, in the, it says that in the beginning 
was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So here John is saying that in the beginning, referencing God creating the heavens and the earth, in the beginning was the Word. It's the Greek word logos. He said the Word was with God. Just as someone's words are not they represent them, their words are distinct from them, but their words embody their mind and their will. And Jesus, although he was with God, although he was separate from the Father, yet he was one with the Father. That's what John is saying here. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then in verse 2, he asserts again, He was with God in the beginning. In other words, he has no origin. He has no beginning. He is eternal. And what God, what he's making here as a claim is that Jesus and the father have always been one. The essence of God is to understand that there is a unity in the Godhead, that God, the father and God, the son are both indistinct and separate, but yet both God. They're united, but yet they're separate. And this is a huge claim. Now remember, John is a young Jewish boy, and Jews were famous for their belief in a monotheistic God, that there is only one God, and that is true. And people who have struggled through this idea of what's called the Trinity in Christian doctrine, that the Father the Son, and the Holy Spirit are, in essence, the one true God. But what the New Testament gives us a clear understanding is the essence of God is selfless love. John's the one that writes in his epistle that God is love. Well, love requires there to be one to which it is shown to. God eternally is love. Therefore, there has always been at the essence of God Selfless, self-giving love. That is what God, that is at the heart of it. Now, here is important to understand. We are finite human beings and God is infinite. God is so complex and so amazing. And the revelation of scripture is the realization that God consists of Father and Son and Holy Spirit, who is the one true God. Now, I can hear that in many minds, in Deuteronomy 6, it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. But the word one there that's used in Deuteronomy 6 is the exact same word that's used in Genesis 2.24. Moses is the same one who wrote Deuteronomy as the one that wrote Genesis. And the point that we've missed in not studying or understanding this clear enough is that at the essence of it, the, the truth was always found in Scripture because God said the two, speaking of the man and the woman, would be one. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and be joined into his wife, and the two should be one flesh. So united in one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. In other words, he's supreme. In fact, even in the book of Genesis, God said, let us make man in our image. So there's more than one that are in communication and in discussion. It's so important to see that this truth about God is contained in Scripture, that there is only one creator God, but he exists in three united personalities. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But John here is dealing with the subject of the identity of Jesus. And he said, and he was in the beginning with God. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In other words, Jesus is the actual agency by which God created everything he created. It is so critical and important to see. In fact, in Genesis 1, We see God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness covered the face of the deep. And then the Bible tells us that the Spirit of the Lord hovered upon the face of the deep. He hovered over the faces of the water, and God said. So God used his words 
to create. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And through him, he created all things. So we see in Genesis 1, if we look carefully enough, that we see the Word of God, we see the Spirit of God, and we see God the Father, the Supreme in the Trinity, is the one who orchestrates and uh, issues forth his will. And he does, throw, he does so through the Logos, the Word of God. It perfectly embodies the will and mind of the one who ushers it forth. And that's what John is claiming here about Jesus, and that is huge. It is a massive claim. Then he goes down to verse 14 of chapter 1. He says, And the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Now, John is referencing here when he said he made his dwelling, in the Jewish mind, he had the understanding that he tabernacled. That's really what it was saying, that Jesus tabernacled. In other words, he was God in a human body. He was God that became human. And that is so mind-bending to understand how great the love of God was, that God, the almighty, the all-powerful, all-knowing, ever-present, everywhere God, Jesus, the Bible teaches us in the book of uh, uh, Philippians, Paul writing, said, laid aside all of his mighty power and glory and took upon himself the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of man. The word in, 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 the, in the book of Philippians that Paul uses, it's the kenosis of Jesus Christ. In other words, Jesus was able to lay aside his mighty power and glory to take upon himself the form of a servant and be made in the likeness of a man. Jesus became fully human and yet was still fully divine. See, John is dealing with in his gospel the realization that Jesus was truly God who had come to humankind in human form. And he says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. You see, in the tabernacle of Moses, what they became clear to is that it was where the glory of God resided. Now John is making reference to this and said, we saw the glory of God residing in this human being. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. And then in verse 18, John goes on to say this, no one has ever seen God. But the one and only Son, who is himself God. Notice the claim here that John is making. That Jesus is, in, is, is himself God. He's not the Father. And this is where people get mixed up. But the realization that to understand God, he is making the claim that God the Father and God the Son are united together as one. And it said, no one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who, am, who is himself God, is in the closest relationship with the Father. He has made him known. One of the most important reasons why Jesus came to earth and became human was to make God known. People had asked questions for centuries. People had always wanted to know because Adam and Eve in the garden had walked directly with God. They knew God in a way that since that time, human beings had never really known God in the same level. No one had ever seen God. They had walked with him in the garden. But now Jesus comes to make the invisible God visible. What's important for us to recognize and to understand, which we're going to look at as we study this gospel together, is that Jesus gives us the ability to know and understand God for ourselves, which is so fascinating because it's impossible to truly know God apart from Jesus because our minds can go into ways and people have misunderstood. That's one of the reasons in current culture people attempt to um, dismiss so much from the Bible because they don't understand. And most of the questions that they have is the revelation of God in the Old Testament. And I heard a conversation once between two people, neither one were, were believers, but one was making fun of this and saying, well, so what you're trying to say is that Jesus came along to straighten out his father? The old man was just not, wasn't with it, and so Jesus is going to show us how this was done? No, Jesus and the father are one. Jesus came to make clear. 
He came to give us an understanding because we would see God operate within humankind. He would see, we would see God and how he thought and how he acted. And we would know the heart of the Father because by looking at the Son, Jesus said these words in John's Gospel, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. And that's important in our studies that we're going to discover that Jesus came to make God known. Because in John's Gospel, John loves the, term, the, the number seven. In John's Gospel, John makes seven claims that Jesus made about himself. He claimed that he is, he said, I am the bread of life. And what's important to understand, the term I am, that was the most sacred name for God under the Old Testament. When Moses saw God in the burning bush, when he was given the commission to go back and to, to, to bring his people, God's people from captivity in, in um, Egypt, and Moses asked the question of God, what if the people ask me what your name is? What shall I say? And God said, Yahweh. I am that I am. In Hebrew, it's the term Yahweh. And it's the most sacred of all names of God. And here Jesus says of himself, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the gate for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. These claims, John makes seven of them that Jesus made of himself, using the name of God and specifically pointing to a significance for his own life. When he said, I am the bread of life, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, which we'll cover in John 6, in the miracle of the, of the loaves and fishes. He said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you will have no life in yourself. So there's an implication to what this means. But each of these fronts, and this is what's brilliant, the pattern that John creates in his uh, gospel is that Jesus will perform a sign and then he'll make a claim which will cause people to misunderstand and then decisions will need to be made. Some get offended and angry and turn away and say, no, he cannot be the one that God sent. He can't be the Messiah. And others will put their faith and trust in Jesus. And so these same controversy rise in our day. And so the pattern of this book is so amazing because he makes the seven claims and he also uses the term Jesus seven times. John records Jesus just using the name of God. When the woman at the well said to him, when Messiah comes, he will tell us the way. Jesus said, I am. In other words, he said, I am Yahweh. When the disciples saw him walking on the water in John chapter 6, and he came into the boat, he said, I am. Jesus used the term when, when, the, when the crowds were around him and the Jewish leaders were there. One of the times that John ate, Jesus said before Abraham was, I am. When the people heard these things, they knew the claim Jesus was making. In fact, the religious leaders knew that, which is why they took up rocks to stone him. When Jesus made claims, even calling God his father, that was offensive to the Jewish leaders because they said he is making himself equal with God. They knew exactly what claims he was making about himself. And that's why the Gospel of John takes on this issue of the identity of Jesus straight on. He deals with this issue of the divinity of Jesus Christ, that Jesus was in truth divine. Because by the time John had become an old man, there were people that were coming along saying, well, Jesus wasn't God, but he was more than a human. And they were trying to make a special category and classification for it. There are some beliefs out there today that try to hold on to this as well, that said Jesus is the first creation of God. No, you cannot read the Gospel of John and come away with any other realization that Jesus made direct claims on who he was. In fact, when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, the very last time he uses the term, I am, when they came looking for him, the soldiers and the, and the uh, authorities from the Sanhedrin, that they had come to arrest Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, they said, who are you looking for? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus turns around and says, I love this. It's in John 18, 5. Jesus says, I am. And the soldiers and the authorities fall back. 
They fall to the ground because Jesus uses the name of God and the power of God is unleashed. And Jesus reveals himself right before he does what he came to the earth to do. Jesus came to sacrifice his life for the sins of humankind. And when you understand and recognize the claims of Jesus that he was in truth God, what you come away with the understanding of is that God so loved the world that he came to solve man's sin problem for himself. Jesus took in himself the very curse that had come about on the earth because of sin. Jesus came to bring the solution for all humankind. And why was he able to stand in for every single human, past, present, and moving forward? Because he was in truth God. He was the creator of all there is. Therefore, he could stand in for all of creation. But again, I don't want to get ahead of myself. John is so awesome. So today, we're going to dive in and look at this miracle. I call this this message happy hour because we're going to talk about the miracle of turning water into wine. This was such a great introduction because Jesus, through this act, makes a proclamation about himself that to everyone in the Jewish audience would know and understand because it's a direct reference to being the Messiah. Because the Bible tells us in prophecy, like Isaiah 26, that when Messiah comes, his kingdom will be like a great feast and there will be the abundance of new wine and there will be the generosity of his kingdom. Jesus displays that he is in truth the Messiah through this first act, this first sign, this first miracle. But let's pick up the story in John chapter 2 and verse 1. It said, on the third day. Now, John is brilliant. If you're really, really excited about this, and I get geeked when I study this all in. He said, on the third day, he's talking about John starts this revelation from the very beginning, from the onset of John the Baptist's claim. Because in his prologue, after he finishes that, he goes to John, who was sent from God to be a witness of the light. And he talks about the testimony of John because the, John, the son of Zebedee, had been a follower. He and Andrew, the, the brother of Peter, had been followers of John the Baptist. And one day, John proclaims of Jesus that he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John proclaims of Jesus that he is the Son of God. And so John, the apostle, John, the disciple of Jesus, not John the Baptist, and Andrew follow Jesus because of the testimony of John the Baptist. So they, they discover Jesus and spend time with Jesus, and then immediately Andrew goes back to his brother Peter and says, we found the Messiah. Come, you need to see him for yourself. And Jesus begins to gather disciples from that moment. So we come into John. John has been counting days from that first day when he encountered Jesus at the Jordan River where John the Baptist was baptizing. And so John spends the day with them. The next day, they bring Peter and then Philip and Nathaniel come to know Jesus. So by the third day, he's talking about the third day from the last. So what's brilliant here is if you count the days, John is now saying that this miracle is about to occur on the seventh day. And why is that significant? Because God created the world in six days, and on the seventh day he rested. And the seven to God had always meant the place of perfection. And the reign of the Messiah would bring, bring the ultimate jubilee, the 70th year, the seventh day, the time of the promise of mankind's return to the will and purpose of God. Because man was created to rule the world in the love and power of the living God. We were to be as priestly rulers of the world, to work in unity with our Father in heaven, and to administrate his grace and his power on the earth. And so now the Messiah comes to restore this plan. And this miracle that he does happens on the seventh day that John is recording. It's, that's just, sorry, I just get a little geeky on that when I study this. It's so amazing. But he said, on the third day, a wedding took place in Cana of Galilee. 
Now, let me help you understand a little bit. Wedding ceremonies in the day in which Jesus lived took place like this. When two people determined to marry, and most marriages back in ancient days were arranged marriages, but whether it was the choice of the individuals or whether it was the choice of those that arranged the marriage, once a man proposed to a woman, what we call in our day engagement, the Jewish people associated at the point at which two agreed to be joined, that they would be considered in that moment married. Although there would be a ceremony that would take place afterwards. And why is this significant? Because when Joseph and Mary were engaged, they were betrothed to be married, they were considered as married. And that's why it was so shameful and disgraceful to, for Mary to be found pregnant, not by Joseph while she was espoused to another. That's why she could have been stoned. That's why she could have been executed because she would have violated the covenant. But that's why when God revealed to Joseph, no, Joseph, what Mary tells you is true. The baby that is in her womb is not of human origin. The Holy Spirit truly did overshadow her. And what is in her is holy. What is in her is the Son of God. And so, when a Jewish man uh, proposed to a woman and she accepted and there was a ceremony done, then what it was responsible for the groom to do was to go away and to prepare a house for them to live in. Also to save money because a wedding celebration in the days of Jesus generally lasted a week or more. In other words, all of your friends, all of your family, all of your village, all of the people that were associated with you in your life were all come to celebrate. The Jews understood the realization of celebration. And so here it was, they would be responsible to host a feast for a week or more. And so the, the groom was to get all of these preparations done. And when everything was completed, he would go to his bride, usually at midnight, and cry out, and there would be the, the, the friend of the bridegroom cry, the groom is coming, and the bride needed to be ready. And he would come and usher her away, and the feast would begin, and the celebration would happen. And so a wedding ceremony took place for usually a week or more. And why this is significant, because watch what happens in this. Jesus and his mother, Jesus's mother was there. And Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to this wedding. Now, what's important is Cana is about nine miles north of Nazareth in these days, that the person being married had to be either a close friend or a family member because Mary, the mother of Jesus, was somehow um, involved in the affairs of this wedding. Somehow she had to either be involved in the catering or the service or something going on in this because it had to be someone significant. It's also why Jesus was invited to be there and his disciples were invited to come along with him. And so what happens and what, what's about to, to arise, there's a tension that's about to begin. Now what's fascinating in the Gospel of John, John never calls Jesus' mother by her proper name, Mary. Probably not to confuse her with the other Marys that are mentioned in the life of Jesus, like Mary Magdalene, or there were other, there were many Marys that were men. So he calls always Mary, the mother of Jesus. He calls her Jesus' mother. And there's two places she's found in the gospel of John, here in John chapter two and in John 19 on the cross. And both times John was significantly involved in these. So here, John is an eyewitness. He's talking place and he tells the story. He says, on the third day, a wedding took place in Cana of Galilee and Jesus' mother was there and Jesus and his disciples also had him invited to the wedding. And when the wine was gone. Now, what's significant here is this. Two things. Number one, obviously the groom did not prepare well because the wine ran out before the feast was over. And why is that significant? If you think about it in today's times, if you're the father of a bride and you've paid for a wedding that's going on and the reception is happening and all of a sudden the caterer comes up to you and says, the food has run out and half of your guests have not yet been served, would that be an embarrassment? Of course it would be. But we have no idea in the culture that this took place in, it was a culture of honor and a culture of shame. 
This would be something that this family would not ever live down. It would be a shame in their community. It would be something that they would absolutely be overwhelmed with because this, in a, in a culture of hospitality, because it was an honor to have people over to your home. It was an, When you read the Bible, it's from an Eastern mindset and hospitality was high and it was a social responsibility. And if you did not perform it, it was a shame. And so in essence here, the wine ran out and Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. So that's why we come to infer here that Mary must have been involved somehow in the catering before everybody else at the wedding ceremony knew, before all the guests realized, she knew that the wine had run out. And so she comes to Jesus and she says to him, they have no more wine. Now in verse four, Jesus said, woman, why do you involve me? Now that's hard. And it's, it's actually not a very good translation because Jesus isn't being disrespectful. I mean, you think about it, he said, woman, but he doesn't call her mother because what's important to recognize at this particular point in Jesus' life, he had gone out into his ministry. He was now beginning the journey the which he had come to this earth to perform. He was going out to be the Messiah. Most commentators, most Bible scholars at this point believe that this time uh, Joseph had already died and Jesus, because he was the firstborn, was, had taken the responsibility of caring for the family, which is why Mary probably came to him and said, the wine's run out. She wanted him to do something. Jesus was probably had a reputation of being very resourceful in the family. But now their relationship was changing. Now Jesus is setting a new order because although she was responsible for bringing him into the world, what Jesus now she must come to realize is that Jesus is actually the one that created her. And although he existed before he was ever in her womb, now she would need to see him not as her child any longer, but she needed to begin to see him as her Messiah and her Savior, that he would be the one that would save her from her sins. And so Jesus says to her, and this is a better way to probably translate that, he says, my lady. In other words, he's respectful and honorable. This is, this is a formal affair. So he doesn't say mom. He says, my lady, why do you involve me? Literally in Greek, it means what is this to do with me? and with you. In other words, and then he says this, this is so important. He says, my hour has not yet come. This is a reference that Jesus says of himself that John repeats through, entire, through his entire gospel because the hour in which he's talking about is the hour of his glorification, which is when Jesus is crowned and exalted on the cross. When Jesus is lifted up, because in his conversation with Nicodemus in chapter 3 of the Gospel of John, he says to Nicodemus that as Moses lifted up the serpent on the pole, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. And when the Son of Man is lifted up, he will draw all men to himself. The point of Jesus' exaltation was the cross, because that's the fulfillment of what he came to earth to do. And that's why he was crowned. Now, he was crowned with the, with the crown of thorns, but he came to be the savior of the world. That was the hour of his glorification. And he said, it's not yet my hour. But notice this, and this is significant to understand the rest of this story. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. And that's so critical. That's something you need to underline in your Bible. Do whatever he tells you. Because as I said, this is a manual for discipleship as well as a real revelation of who Jesus is. Because when you and I, the more we, are, the more we come to believe in who he is, the more inclined we are to do what he says. And to truly be a disciple of Jesus is to honor and to know him for who he is. And then because of such, that we recognize that everything he says we're responsible to carry out because he is Lord. He is God in a bod. So she says, do whatever he tells you. It says, nearby there stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. In other words, this miracle that Jesus is about to perform, he's about to create between 120 and 180 gallons 
gallons of wine. That's a lot. But again, this is a fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies regarding the Messiah because the Messiah would bring new wine. It was a sign of blessing. It was a sign of absolute generosity and the fulfillment of God's will because it was always a point. And what Jesus is ushering in here, he is the king. And he's come to bring the kingdom of God to earth. And this was a sign that everything was changing because these six stone water jars that were used for ceremonially washing, Jesus is about to change all that because, you see, the Jews went through all of these religious ceremonies to make themselves clean before God. And Jesus is about to begin to reveal the fact that it's belief in him alone that makes one clean before Almighty God. We won't need to go through rituals and ceremonies. We won't need to sacrifice bulls and goats. We won't need to go through any of the purification laws of the Old Testament. Now, faith in Jesus will make us clean before Almighty God, because this is a fulfillment of the Messiah's work. But he says to the servants, fill up the jars. And so they fill them to the brim. Notice this, Jesus gives a command. They don't know what he's about to do. But what did Mary say? Whatever he tells you to do, do it. And that's important for you and I as disciples of Jesus to recognize that whatever Jesus tells you to do, do it. You know, many of us, if we're honest, we say we believe in Jesus, but do we do what Jesus says? Because to truly be a believer, to truly be a disciple of Jesus is to be a believer, is to be one who recognizes and understands that he is my savior and he is my Lord. So his word is, my com is, is the command to me. And it is my joy to do what he says do because I can trust him. See, to believe again is to put your trust in. It's to adhere to. It's to, it's to have that sense of loyalty. It's a confidence because you know who he is and you know whatever he tells you to do is for your best interest at heart. Again, that's why it's important to come to believe in Jesus for yourself, because there are many people today who say they believe, but yet, in essence, they bargain with God. They'll only do what God says when they think that there's a benefit in store for them. And that's not truly reverence. That's not truly submission. That's not truly holding Jesus as their king. But Jesus says to the servants, fill the jars. Now think about this for a moment, and this is one of the reasons sometimes we don't see God's power working in our lives, because these, the water is about to be turned into wine, but notice it hasn't been turned yet. Jesus gives a command, fill the jars with water. So notice what happens. So they fill them to the brim. That was a lot of work. There was a lot to accomplish that, to fill 120 or 180 gallons worth of water is a lot of hard work to do. And sometimes God asks us to do things. And because it's difficult, we don't follow through. We don't do it all the way. Notice they filled the jars to the brim. Many times when things get difficult, we don't fulfill or complete what God's asked us to do. How many times have we felt the understanding that God wants us to do something, but we only went halfway? We didn't complete what he set out to do. What you and I must recognize is before the second command came that turned the water into wine, you had to complete the first one. How many things have we done halfway? How many times have we attempted to do what God said but didn't give our all? We didn't put our whole into it. We didn't do all the way. We only did half the job. No, they filled the water to the brim. In other words, Jesus didn't give the second command that brought the miracle until they had fulfilled the first one. And when they had fulfilled them, when they had filled them to the brim, he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. You see, I believe the miracle occurred that the water, and here's the thing that you and I need to understand as disciples of Jesus, that he comes in our life, the entrance of God's life coming into our life is that it turns the ordinary into extraordinary. To, to understand and to live the life of God is to realize that in every facet of our lives, when we order our lives around the words of Jesus, he turns our ordinary circumstances into extraordinary ways. Example, if you're married, to have an extraordinary marriage is to fulfill the will of Jesus, to do what Jesus said, 
So in essence, if you're a husband, it means to love your wife like Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. Self-giving love, when given and shown in a marriage, takes an ordinary circumstance and makes it extraordinary. See, fulfilling the will of God, doing what Jesus said, to truly be a disciple of Jesus isn't to second guess or question what he says do, but to do it with all your heart. How many times has God said things to us to do, like forgive that person who hurt you, and we've had a thousand reasons why we don't need to do that. How about dealing with our money, our financial affairs, doing what God said do with our money, that we have a thousand and one reasons why we don't need to do that. To truly be a follower of Jesus, that's why this gospel truly is a manual for us for discipleship, because to be a disciple of Jesus is to come to trust in and believe in and have confidence in who he is so that we would be inclined to do what he says, because we don't experience the life that John said he wanted us, that believing we may have life. To experience the way God designed us to live is to order our lives around the words of Jesus. And so listen to this. He told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. Well, they filled it with water. So that was an act of faith because taking this water to the master of the banquet, they were servants. They could have thought in their mind, oh my goodness, we could get fired. We could get dismissed from our duties and responsibilities. But again, Mary had said what's key for us to understand. Whatever he tells you to do, do it. And so they, so they did. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. And he did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. And then he called the bridegroom inside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. That's so funny because some people have tried to say, oh, Jesus really never turned water into wine. He just turned it into grape juice because we have so many uh, uh, objections to the idea of alcohol. And yes, alcohol has been abused by human beings. But here the, the Bible gives a clear realization that wine makes the heart merry, that alcohol in its right use, in its proper condition, can be a, poor, can be a source of joy. And it is, in truth, one of the signs of the Messiah's kingdom. We as humans don't necessarily know the responsible use of it, but here, culturally speaking, Jesus turned water to wine because context-wise, look what the master of the feast said. He said, normally people put the best stuff out first, and then when others have had too much to drink. In other words, after you've drunk, you've drank for a while, you tend to not be as... Uh, astute. Your taste buds don't need to, they're not necessarily as sensitive as they once were. And that is the way we are as human beings. We always put our best foot forward. When we meet people for the first time, I always tell people that are dating, as it listen, don't go by what happened on the first day. Stay around for a while. Find out what other stuff they bring out because the, the, the other wine is what you might have to live with as well. They're not always going to put the best stuff out first. And so here, the master of the feast said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first and the cheap wine after. The guests have had too much to drink, but you have saved the best until now. And that's what you need to know. Whenever you obey the words of Jesus, he always brings the best. It's always better than whatever we could have achieved on our own. Why? Because he's God in a bod. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus, that I live my life after what he says, because he knows more than I do. And, so what, and then verse 11 says, what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs. See, this was the sign. Jesus was introducing himself as the Messiah, the king who had come, that the kingdom of God had come to the earth. And now this was the first sign, the generosity and flow, that there is new wine, that he's the one that came to fulfill the prophecies of old. It was the first sign, John said, that through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. You see, Jesus' kingdom came to change everything. It came to change the nature of man's relationship with God. And we're going to study more about that. We're going to look more into this. But this is what I really want us to take away. To experience the life that God intended for us to live comes by first and foremost, believing for ourselves 
and trusting in Jesus for who he is, and then because of our belief, because of what we trust in, that we would do what Jesus says. Because to truly be a disciple of Jesus, to see all of the miracles that John is about to highlight in his gospel, they all have this theme running through it, that the people who were given the command to do something obeyed the words of Jesus. And when they did, he turns the ordinary into extraordinary, whether it's physical healing, whether it's sight to the blind, whether it's taking a, a, a small boy's lunch and feeding a multitude. Jesus knows how to bring extraordinary things from just ordinary circumstances because he's the God who created it all. And when we put our trust in him, life is never the same. Following Jesus is the most exciting adventure that any of us could have. John highlights the controversies that come about, and it's still controversial today. People deal with persecution as being followers of Jesus, but you and I need to come to realize that when we know Jesus for who he is and trust what he says, that we can experience a quality of life that we could never do so apart from him. And that should be the testimony. That should be what draw men to Jesus. Our lives should give testament to this end because it's not about others obeying the words of Jesus. It's us who are the followers. It's us who trust in him that we begin to order our lives around what Jesus says. And that's the importance. That's one of the things we need to take forward as we study from this gospel. And I hope you stay with me as we go into this. I'm so geeked about it. I'm so excited because this study will truly, hopefully, cause Jesus to become more intimate for us as believers. And if you don't know Jesus, hopefully you come to put your trust in him. Because as John said, the reason that he wrote this is that we might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, we might have life in his name. There is a quality of life that God has designed for each of us to experience it comes through Jesus. It comes through the one that God sent because he so loved you and I that he gave his one and only son that whoever would believe in him could experience that life. The word Zoe predominantly is most translated in the New Testament as eternal life, but really it's the quality of life. It's life as God lives it. And God invites us, you and I, to be able to experience the life we were created to live. How? By following Jesus. I hope you stay with me as we continue to go in in the weeks that follow and really pull apart and study this book, The Gospel of John. Till next time, this is Pastor Ken. <music>